Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Restoration Church Podcast. This is the first message in our series called Kinetic, which explores Matthew chapter 4. We hope you enjoy. Good morning, everybody. How you doing? Doing well. It's good to see everybody. Thank you for coming to Restoration Church. Um, Lance and I were in Nashville this week on Monday and Tuesday for the 2015 SIN conference through the International and North American Mission Board. And we're going to give you kind of an update on that today and where what we learned and what we brought back and how I, I, I want to tell you, I was super encouraged by what we heard. And, and it's that we haven't been goofing off for a past year and a half, right, as a, as a church plant. We have, we're not just like shooting off, trying to figure out where we want to go and, and we are on path with what God is doing, and that's what this conference kind of confirmed in my heart, and uh, I think it's really cool. Over the past several weeks, we've been in the book of Matthew. We spent eight weeks in the book of Matthew, and we've been looking at the king and his kingdom, right? That's kind of the gist of it. We see how the king is introduced on the stage through his genealogy, through witnesses. We see that his kingdom is coming through, the, through his herald, John the Baptist, and uh, we're going to start a little mini-series to continue on in John called Kinetic today. And uh, kinetic means what? Movement, right? Motion, movement. And, uh, and God is in the business of moving in our culture. And so we want to join him. And this is kind of how God started his movement uh, in, in the culture through Jesus. This is where we're going to be studying. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 today, if you want to find your Bibles. Um, this is going to take us up to right after Labor Day, September 6th. It's going to take us right past that. And then we're going to start another mini-series that's going to examine the Sermon on the Mount that we're calling Masterpiece. And uh, Lance has done a lot of really cool work in the structure and the design of the Sermon on the Mount. And he's got a lot of st- cool stuff to teach us. And we basically came to the realization it is how God makes us into his masterpiece is what the Sermon on the Mount is really all about. So that's why we're calling it Masterpiece. So we're going to get, be there. Um, as, as we were in, at this conference, we were there with 13,500 other Christians, right? They were, there's, the Bridgestone Arena in downtown Nashville was pretty much filled up. It was pretty crazy. There was just a small section behind the stage that wasn't utilized. But all the way up to the ceiling, you could look around and see people, 13,000. <coughs> Pastors, college students, um, as they said at the conference, the first 25 people to sign up were high school students. The first 25 people to sign up for this conference were high school students. And they gave them front row seats right in front of the stage, right, all 25 of them. Churches brought their entire congregations. Right? One church brought 150 people as, as, as a church to this conference. It was pretty crazy. Um, but th- this is a conference I think that next year we all need to go to together, right? It was, th- it was that good. Uh, the worship was amazing. The speakers were great. Um, it was run by the International Mission Board and the North American Mission Board. So you had Ezell and Platt, the two leaders of the different um, branches of the mission board, were there as kind of MCs and kind of sharing their heart about who we are. And the basic gist of the whole thing was every person can be on the mission of God, right? Mission, missions is not just for missionaries. It's not just for the few select that decide, okay, I'm going to go to Uzbekistan and be a missionary or to China or to Japan. or It's not for those who go overseas. Missions is for everybody. It's for the housewife. It's for the doctor. It's for the pediatrician. That's a doctor too, but whatever. It's the little people doctor, right? Um, it's, it's for everybody. It's for the paramedic. It's for the investor. It's, and it doesn't matter. The grocery store attendant. Missions is for everybody. The college student, the hospital student. And we all can be on mission with God. We can be kinetic. We can be moving with God. So um, 
it was like a missions prep rally in a lot of ways. It pumped me up. I got excited with it. And what I want to encourage you with is that we went to these breakout sessions where um, Ed Stetzer and uh, who's the other guy? Tom Rainer. Tom Rainer is the leader of Lifeway. He's also like a research dude. He researches um, church life, cultural life. And we went to an entire thing. And what I want to present to you is what Tom Rainer taught us about a very specific group of people that we have an opportunity to make a gospel impact in. And that God has designed us as Restoration Church already in our ministry philosophy of relational ministry, intimacy with God through intimacy with others, of missional family groups. He's already designed us to be strategic in reaching this group of people. And we are in the heart of where they live. It's pretty great. God is sovereign. He's moving. So I just want to encourage you with that. Uh, as a matter of fact, we're so strategically located that if you took our same ministry model and you moved us to Zebulon, North Carolina, out in the country, it wouldn't work. It, 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 it wouldn't work. But God has put us in Durham and Chapel Hill and given us the perfect vision and dream to reach our city. So I just want to encourage you with that. So does anybody here, when you think about your life, do you want to leave an impact for the gospel? Does that excite anybody? Do you think like, okay, one person, all right, two people. Okay. <laughs> like, does it excite anybody? Do you get excited about that? Leaving a gospel impact. Like, God has designed you. He saved you not for yourself, but for you to bring glory to him, right? And so when you look about where you work in your life, where you live in your neighborhood, what you do for recreation, God has strategically put you there to bring glory to his name, right? And so our main focus as believers, as followers of Jesus, as disciples, should be to glorify God above all things. And we will leave an impact in our culture if that's our focus. If our focus is wealth and riches or if it's security or comfort, we're not going to leave a gospel impact. But if our focus is the glory of God, we can change this culture. We can do crazy things. And when we die, there will be an eternal result. Right? Our lives will have an eternal result. I want to have that kind of KOG impact. Anybody else? Wonderful. I'm glad there's more energy in that. All right. So in order to do that, we can either be potential or we can be kinetic. Right? I mean, there's two different types of energy. Potential energy, we can sit still, wrapped up with all this potential to move and to change the world, or we can get moving. Right? Let's move. Let's move. Let's get on movement with God. Right? And as a matter of fact, we're on movement with God. We are moving together. We haven't been sitting still. Right? We've been moving. We've been moving. But today, what I hope you leave with is a really big view of who God is. Right? That your brain goes, wow, he's so cool. This is, this is not by chance we've been doing what we're doing. God is super cool. And a focus of what we need to do. Okay? So that's what we're kind of shooting for. So if you're in your book, Matthew chapter 4, 12 through 17, we're going to start this kinetic series with seeing how Jesus started his public ministry. Right? So we know that he showed up and he was baptized by John, that he was taken into the wilderness. Right? And by the way, if you missed last week's message, it's online, the baptism of Jesus. Ricky did a great job. So go online, watch it. Uh, it's under messages, restorationchurch.us backslash messages. You can check that out. All right, Matthew 4. He's in the wilderness. He comes out of the wilderness, and we pick it up here. Okay? When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, and which was by the lake near Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said of the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On, the, on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. A light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach. Similarly enough, the same thing John was preaching, right? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. 
right, let's pray. Father, speak to us. Father, I pray that you would um, bring peace today in our hearts as maybe what we hear is not what we thought we were going to hear. You know, maybe what we, we discover from what you're doing in this world is not what we thought you were doing, but man, it's so beautiful how you brought us along in your kinetic movement in this culture. And so, Lord, bring uh, ears to hear, eyes to see, lives to live, Father. Change us for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so from this text, we're going to see a couple of things. One, we see that Jesus heard that John was in prison, right? So the guy who had started this kingdom come, right? The one who was out in the wilderness proclaiming, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. The guy who started the movement, right, is now absent. He's in prison, right? And so um, Jesus is like, okay, my homeboy over here, my cousin, who's out preaching and preparing the way for me, now he's in jail. His voice has been silenced. I guess I need to pick it up, right? And so Jesus starts to preach the same message. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. But he went to a very specific place to do it, right? To fulfill the prophecy that Isaiah said, he went to Naphtali and Zebulun, all right? These are two, two areas. And they were considered spiritually dark, right? They were shut off from the gospel. They were shut off from the, the kingdom of God. They were, they were in the world. They were living in the world. They were living the patterns that if you look around our culture today in Durham and Chapel Hill, you'd see, right? I mean, people are just head down. The world is their focus. They don't even have a clue that the kingdom of God is there. They're real. It's a dark place. And a light, Jesus the light, came into the darkness and shone among those people, right? He started in a spiritually dark place. He was very strategic in where he went, right? He left Galilee where he already had an established group of people. He already knew people, right? He grew up in that area. He went to a spiritually dark area to get focused, to get going. And then he picked up the same message. He got involved in the same movement that God had already started with John. And that's what we're going to focus a little bit more on this in a, in a couple weeks. But hear that. He didn't just start this. He picked up on what God was already doing and moving in people's hearts. He went to a strategic place and spoke a strategic message. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. There was, there was, there was, it wasn't just haphazard. He did this intentionally. Imagine if we, Restoration Church, could have an impact on an area of great spiritual darkness. Right? What if, what if we focused in, if we looked at our ministry area profile, right? We did one of these a year and a half ago when we started this church. We, we drew a line in Durham around an area that was uh, an area that we wanted to impact, right? And we called this a ministry area profile. And if we looked at this ministry area profile, there is a section of the population, 33%, that are classified as the most spiritually dark. We're going to learn who they are. But the most spiritually dark, the most spiritually clueless, they don't, they don't get the kingdom. Focused in, 33%, the largest majority of our little ministry area profile is a, a condensed, dark space for the Spirit of God and the kingdom of God. Would we want to have an impact there? I think we should, right? If we're going to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth, we need to go where there is no light, right? We've got to go in the darkest place. So, um, God has put us in our own Zebulun. He's put us in our own Naphtali. And we call them Chapel Hill and Durham. It's the same place, but he's put us in a very strategic place of spiritual darkness because of the population of these two cities, right? The population of these cities. So our opportunity is to have a gospel influence on a very specific subculture, okay? And this is what we learned from our, our conference. Like our big dream, our big vision kind of got focused, right? We were on the right path, but man, we just, it got focused of how we can have the biggest gospel impact. That's what we want to have, right? The most effective gospel impact. So we go to the darkest place. We've got to know what the darkest place is. That's what we're going to find out today. 
All right. Um, this is the, the only negative with using your, your thing is if you touch it too many times, it messes you up. All right, cool. All right. Durham Chapel Hill, saturated with what we're going to call the potential energy generation, the darkest spiritually area in our, in, our, in, our, in our city, this potential energy generation, right? We want them to move. We want them to get kinetic right now, their potential energy. It's the largest generation in America. There are 80 million people involved in this generation, 80 million people, all right? It's the largest one in history, in the history of the world, the largest generation exists today, right? 80 million people. There are 62,260 of them in just the little circle that we drew to focus on at the church. 62,000 members of this generation. Um, that's 33% of our profile area. That's the, that's the concentrated spiritual darkness. They are the most spiritually dark generation in the world, right? Only 15% of them say they're Christian. Only 15%. Now, take that back to another generation that many of you are familiar with. 64% said and I'll tell you which generation these are at the end. I'm kind of building suspense. See, I'm not telling you this. Right? 64% of this generation over here were Christian. 15% of this generation. Spiritually dark. Uh, but they're not as unchurched as they are spiritually dark. Right? As, as spiritually clueless. 20% of them go to church at least two times a month. 20%. So they're not opposed to the gospel. They're just not moving with the gospel. Right? Their heart's not closed to it. They just, they're not living it. As their, their whole lifestyle. So there's a huge advantage. If we can get this 15% or this 20% that's plugged in halfway to go to 60%, right, or, or move on up, it would have a greater impact in that dark culture, in that 15% of lostness. Or sorry, 85% of lostness, 15% of white. They're the most diverse generation in all of history. Most diverse. They're more tolerant of races and of, of age dis discrepancies than any other generation by, by characteristic. They're 40% more likely to like you if you're a different race, a different creed, a different religion, a different whatever than you are themselves. They're more than likely compared to 18% of the oldest generation. 18% of the oldest generation says, I don't have any, maybe I'll be interested in you. But like the vast majority to themselves, very secluded. 47% of this one is diverse. The potential energy generation is a master of self-expression. 75% created profiles on social networking sites. 75% of, this, of this, this demographic. 20% post a video of themselves online. 38% uh, have at least six tattoos. <laughs> They're very expressive. And 23% uh, have a piercing in at least one earlobe. Right? I mean, they're, they're expressive. They want to be heard. They want to express themselves. So they're a voice. Right? This spiritually dark, closed off section wants to be heard, but they don't know what their message should be. Right? So they're all over the place. They're online. They're in, the, they're in the public square. They're expressing themselves with their bodies and piercings and tattoos and what they wear and how they dress. They just don't know what their message to be. They're our most relational generation. They, they are the most, they're more likely to have a relationship with someone older or younger than them than any other generation in history. Right? So they're strategic. They're strategic in the fact that if we target them, we'll reach all generations if we target this one. Right? Because they are the, statistically, the most relational generation. They want to be involved in their lives. They're the most highly educated generation, right? 72% of them graduate from high school. That's, that's up. That's way, way up. 72%. 68 enroll in college, 68%. And then 58% graduate with a four-year degree. They're a highly educated group of people. They know what they're doing. So we can't just give them the regular old church service. They're going to ask you, why are we doing this? They're going to ask you the why question. And we've got to have a why answer. 
right? They're very intelligent. They're, they have the highest expectations. This is one of the coolest parts of this whole, the whole thing that I learned. They have the highest expectations of any generation in history. Highest expectations. They think that 97% of these people think they're going to do something great with their life to impact the world. 97% think they're going to do something great to impact the world. You hear that? They're ready to move. The potential energy generation is ready to move to do something great. 90% of them believe it's their personal responsibility to do that thing that's great. Not just, just tack on and let somebody else do it and they follow it. 90% think it's my responsibility to change the world. High expectations. Statistically, they're the most committed generation. They're most committed to marriages. They stick it out longer than any other generation. They're the most committed to life. They're, they're less, they, they less favor abortion than any other generation. They're most committed to life. They're most committed to um, their families, to their jobs, if their jobs are committed to them. Right? If their jobs are not committed, then they're peace out and go to something else. But if their jobs are committed to them, they'll give you everything. Right? So who better to focus to raise up the fear of the Lord in marriages and to, fear, uh, and to, to raise the banner of life or to, 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 to raise the banner of the family than this generation? Right? They're already most committed. We might as well focus on them. They're the most culturally dem the cross-cultural demographic. They connect better. I think I said this with any other uh, generation because they're relational. They seek out older people to mentor them. They actually go do that, right? And, and they, they want to be mentored, and they want to mentor others, right? They, they think that they have something to give and something to receive from all generations. And this is, this is another cool thing. They're globally, they're the most global generation. Not only are they the biggest in, in history, but they're the most global. 92% of them think that at some time they're going to serve overseas in their job. 92% think I, I, I'm expecting to live overseas somewhere for my job. They're ready to go across the world. So listen to this. This is pretty cool. God has rigged the system with this generation for a gospel explosion. Right? He's rigged it for himself. He set them up with high expectations. He set them up to be incredibly relational. He's set them, set them up to want to go across the globe without having hindrance, right? He's rigged the whole system with this generation, this spiritually dark group, for a gospel explosion, for a great gospel impact. So who are they? Which one is it? You might be like, it's Jonathan's. Todd's like, no, it's mine. Like, I expect to serve overseas, right? <laughs> Rick and Jane might be, Rick, Rick and Jane like, I don't really like mentoring. <laughs> no, they, they are mentors. They mentor me and Rebecca. So, like, I know they might, you might be thinking it's your generation. Here's who it is. The builders, the greatest generation, right? Those who are 65 and older. 64% of them are Christian. It's not them. 64% of the builders are Christian. They claim themselves to be Christian. The baby boomers, right? Maybe you think it's the baby boomers. The largest generation in history, right? I mean, the big explosion after World War II. There are 72 million baby boomers. There are 80 million of this group. It's larger than the baby boomers. And that's in the economy of Facebook. And, then, and that generated the economy of Facebook. Although my mom has a Facebook account. So and they don't have that. So the baby boomers, 35% say they're Christian. Right? So we go from the oldest 64 to the baby boomers. We've had a 30-something, almost a 31% decrease. 35% say they're Christian. The Gen Xers, Todd, rocking it out. You're a Gen Xer, right? Yeah. Todd and Rachel. 24% uh, of your population says they're Christian. Do you see this decline? 64, 35, 24. So they're the millennials. This is the greatest opportunity for us as a church, the millennials. 
Now, you might think, well, that's just your preference because you're a woman. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm in on the tail end of this, right? I'm on the very, in the, in the first two years. So I could be a Gen Xer in my, in my philosophy, in my life. I could be a millennial. Um, so this is not a preference thing. This is the statistics that were studied and, and, and tell us about this generation, right? The millennials. Only 15% of the millennials believe that are, are, are Christians. 15% of 62,000 people in our little circle are believers. They love Jesus. So that means we have a, a potential for an 85% impact. <laughs> you know, if, if we go after millennials in this area. 85% impact. Huge, huge opportunity. They're from the ages of 15 to 35. That's what classifies them. 1980 to 2000. So it's, it's one of the largest generations in history because it expands 20 years. Right? It's a 20-year gap. And as a matter of fact, the studies show that in the next 10 years, the next, uh, the first 10 years of the next generation is going to be more like the millennials than any other, than any other group. They're, they're going to be more related to millennials. So they'll be relational. They'll be intentional. They'll have a global mindset, high expectations. They'll be super optimistic. So that means we would have a 30-year span of generation that if we focus in on this group, right? So people who haven't been born yet and people who have been born since 1980, if we focus in on them, there's 15% spiritual uh, I mean, 85% spiritual darkness and huge opportunity to impact the culture. Um, I learned this on Monday, and I wasn't shocked to hear it, right? I mean, I wasn't really shocked to hear it, that the millennials are the darkest generation, spiritually darkest generation. I wasn't surprised. I know a lot of millennials. I worked with a lot of millennials when I was a youth pastor, and they're spiritually dark, right? I mean, they want to know the why, and if you don't have a good answer for the why, then I don't have time for you. Right? I mean, if you, if you can't tell them why, you can't just tell them believe. That the, the 64%, the builders, man, you just told them the theology and they believed it and they moved on with it. But now with global access to the internet, global access to answering whatever questions they want to, and then 10,000 different answers that they can find on Google, they want to know why. Why should I believe what you believe? Why should I follow this Jesus guy? I, I heard it. I wasn't shocked. But I, I believe that God's plan from the beginning a year and a half ago, almost two, almost you know, 18 months ago, or 19 months ago, when we started this in the basement of the Gendries, was was to strategically place us in a city that's full of spiritual darkness, and to be a gospel impact in the city, right? And we've talked about that. We want to see every man, woman, and child in, their, in an intimate relationship with one another, so that they can know Christ intimately. Our whole model is relational. Depth groups. The key to who we are. Depth groups. Relational. You've got to build a relationship with somebody, build intimacy, and then start discipling one another, walk with one another, confess sins to one another, pray for one another, serve one another, study scripture with one another, answer the why questions and the why I'm struggling and how I'm suffering. It's all relational. And that is what millennials crave. Our missional family group model, where we will, as a family, will go out and serve our community and love the people around us and bring people into the body of Christ, into the family of Christ first before we bring them to the church of Jesus, right, and, and into this, like, we're going to create a relational model for missions. All that was all designed, laid out, and thought through, and, and prayed over long before we went Monday. But Tom Rainer, in his, in, his, in his message to us, when he was talking about statistics of millennials, it just honed it in, that if we focus on people between 15 and 35, they're more likely to reach somebody that's 64 than a 64-year-old would reach. Right? I mean, like, because 64-year-olds want to stay themselves. They're, they're less likely to bridge out. But a, a millennial, a 32-year-old, will go to a 64-year-old and say, will you mentor me? Will you teach me something? Will you invest in me? 
And then they can share the gospel through that, that mentoring relationship, the people who don't even know it, right? They're more likely to go to a high school and minister to a high school student because they, they see value in the Titus 2 model, right? If we focus in on the millennials, we can take Titus 2 and just be like, <laughs> blow it up to the next level, right? Older teaching younger. Older men teaching younger men. Older women teaching younger women. Like, the whole design, the relational design of Restoration Church was designed for the millennial population. And I really had no clue. I mean, several, several weeks ago, Lance told me, well, what's the, we're, I'm not Lance, sorry, Todd asked me, we're, who are we focusing on? What's our focus? I was like, everybody. Well, everybody know Jesus, right? I was like, we want everybody to be in this relationship. We don't really have a focus. And I, and I really thought that. I really thought, I mean, like, because, I mean, I love people who are over, over 65, and I love people who are, you know, barely crawling. Everybody needs to be a part of this intentional relational model, this discipleship model. But what I learned on Monday and what God affirmed in my heart is that if we focus on this generation, 15 to 35, they will reach everybody, right? We not necessarily can by having an everybody model, but if we have a millennial focus model, we'll reach everybody because they want to connect across cultures. And not only if we reach them there, they're coming to the universities all around us, Duke, NC Central, UNC, Wake Tech, Durham Tech, you name it, it's all around here, right? NC State and Raleigh. If we focus on this generation that's coming to us, 92% of them think they're going to go overseas at some point just to serve in their job. So if we teach them to be disciples and then they go to, to Europe to be a, a clerk at an investment firm, they're going on mission with Jesus. We didn't even have to like gather around and pray for them and raise a support team. and, and, like, and send them. We've already prepared them in our discipleship model to be on mission with Jesus wherever they go in the world. And 92% of them expect to not live in America their whole life. So we can have a global impact by focusing on the land. I think it's just stinking amazing. I mean, I don't know. Does it, does that excite anybody? Because like, I'm just like, God is, he sovereignly put us where we're at a year and a half ago and built a model and a vision of relational disciple making. And then on Monday, he's like, yeah, this is what you're supposed to be doing. That's how I'm moving in the culture. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for getting focused. Like, we really appreciate it. But like, we... We're not just shooting in the dark. God has strategically designed us. We all have this heart for this relational model. Let's do it. I like flashlights. Anybody like flashlights? Yes. Matter of fact, I, got, I brought three flashlights. You know, like, the other one is the D light. You put it on the floor when you're like, you have magnets and stuff. I love flashlights. Now, they're not that impressive, right? I mean, maybe one's a little brighter than the other one, right? But I go to Walmart and I go to the flashlight section. Just because I want to be like, how bright can I get a flashlight? <laughs> you know, like, sometimes I think that. I'm like, oh, so that's 200 lumens, and that's 9,000 lumens. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, that. You know, like, I want to be able to stand out in my yard and shine Sylvie on her front porch. I'll be like, there she is right there. You know, like, I, I'm a flashlight freak. I just like flashlights. I don't know why. Maybe it's I work at night a lot, so I just have to see the new flashlights. But um, I bought this one at Aldi, 7 bucks. It's pretty bright, right? I mean, you see, you see it a little bit. You look around, you know, it's a little, it's, it's, it's a bright flashlight, but if I really want to know how bright this flashlight is, how effective it is at providing light, is this the best place to test it? <laughs> the best place to test it is to go into a closet, shut the lights off, put a towel under the door, make it pitch black dark, turn the sucker on and shine it to the ceiling, right? How much light does it, does it bring? Jesus in Matthew 4, he didn't start in Galilee, he didn't start in Jerusalem. He went to a spiritually dark place and started his mission and his ministry. The light of the world, right? The, the God who, God in the flesh, 
the perfect image of the invisible God, went to the spiritually most darkest place he could find to start his ministry. We are strategically designed to go into a very dark spiritual place in the millennial population and shine our lights. And we can, we can try to just, you know, a cop be everything to all men that we might win some. Or we can strategically focus on millennials and let them be all things to all men because they already naturally do it. They already naturally reach across generational, generational lines. They already naturally reach across the boundaries of state and governments and nations. They already naturally go into every area of the culture to start relationships. And if they knew that they could be on mission with Jesus, they could be connected with the movement of God, it's going to have so much more of a gospel impact in our culture than if we don't focus on it. So I want to invite you to seriously pray through that with me. I think that's what God designs us to do. That's who I think we should focus on. And it's not to leave out the other generations. It's to go and get the other generations. Right? I mean, like, if we focus on them, they'll go get them. It's not an exclusion. It's a most strategic impact. Alright, let me pray. And then Lance is going to share some things with Elon from the conference. So, Father, I, I do thank you that you have called us to be intentional about relational discipleship. And, and it's not a new thing, uh, but that God, through this week, you've kind of helped us get really focused as to um, what you want us to do. You, you've really brought a lot of clarity through that conference. And I greatly appreciate the fact, God, that you're exposing your sovereign hand in our lives. Um, this is not a, an invention of ourselves, Father, but this is your will. This is your movement in Durham and Chapel Hill, and you're inviting us to join you. And I just thank you for that, Father. So bring clarity. Father, help us to be strategic with our time, our energy, our efforts, our ministry, our passion. And then, Father, I pray that through our lives and through our submission to your will, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can leave a gospel legacy. We can leave a gospel impact in this culture. That extends way beyond Durham and Chapel Hill. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I know some people when they go on a trip and when they come back, uh, the first thing they do is they make me sit down and look at their pictures. <laughs> so, we are going to look at some pictures today. This um, is a way for us to reflect. And, and I'm, I'm sure many of you, when you said, when you, when you heard Will saying the prayer, no matter how engaged we are in a message, most time when somebody starts to say the prayer, you're like, okay, good, I get to go eat my Cracker Barrel or whatever it is now. And then he said, and then Lance is going to come up here. And you're like, oh, no, here we go again. But, uh, but I'm just going to take a few minutes. I just want to share from my heart um, some of the most impactful things I've heard in the last couple weeks related to this. So Will, Will started out this message by reminding us, that you don't start a movement by just coming up and starting a movement from scratch. Even Jesus didn't do that. Jesus, of course, started it himself as God, you know, in eternity past. Don't get me wrong. But as Jesus being 100% God and 100% man, as a man, he joined a movement that John the Baptist had started. And that was a movement that we saw through prophets and Old Testament uh, and the Old Testament times forever. So Jesus joined a movement. And then took it to its uh, chief apex. And that's really what Will's message in our, in, in our overall message is going to be for a few weeks is how do we join the movement God's own? And Will's done such a good job of articulated, articulating in culture where we see the vision God has laid on the heart of Restoration Church, how impactful it can be. That potential energy that's in front of us. And then the challenge is going to be, be for us to move that into kinetic energy, uh, which is defined as movement. 
taking that, that ball that's sitting on top of the hill full of, uh, of potential energy and then you let it roll down the hill and translating that energy into movement. That's the opportunity we have in front of us. And one of the key themes at uh, Sin North America uh, that we uncovered as we heard different speakers speak was, I really, uh, the way it worked was, just so you know, we'll do that too many times, just so you know, uh, there were breakout sessions where we got a little bit more nuts and bolts, hands-on. He mentioned Tom Rainer and Ed Stetzer were a couple. There were several uh, that spoke to us. Uh, but during the, the big sessions, every single speaker had one basic theme, and that is that no matter, no matter how brilliant your strategy is, even no matter how relevant it is to culture, you can't do this without God's Spirit. And so I want to just speak for just a very, very short amount of time um, and think for a second about what does that mean for our church. So some of us, uh, if, if we grew up Baptist, we might, be, we, got, we might get a little nervous when we start talking about God's Spirit, right? What does that mean? Uh, I think about how God's Spirit has been characterized over the years of different movements. In Acts 2, we see people speaking in tongues, and us Baptists go, what does that mean? Let's, let's, I'm a little nervous about that. Let's, let's, let's not even look at that one too much. We've seen some pretty, I hope it's okay for me to be saying this. This is family talk. I'm just showing you pictures off my phone, so I can say whatever I want to. So, um, so you know, there's been some stuff over the years that have, quote-unquote, characterized God's spirit moving. Uh, they're they're kind of crazy, if you ask me. Like, there was a movement of maybe 30 or 40 years ago, people, and if this is you, forgive me. I'm just, uh, just, just thinking through this out loud in myself, with myself a little bit. I've got some brothers and sisters in Christ who have, have also... Uh, seeing God's Spirit characterize this, but, but it makes me go, does this really characterize God's Spirit? So, for instance, uh, being slain in the Spirit, uh, that for a while was something that characterized people who were filled with the Spirit. Um, I, I was down in uh, Brownville, um, Pensacola, um, Florida, during the Brownsville Revival, for those of you guys who are part of that. Uh, so there was, there was a, a lot of things that characterized God's Spirit, um, even to the, to the thing of of God's spirit falling and being characterized by uh, this. This may sound crazy for some of you, but people barking, barking there in, in the spirit of God. I know you're like, yeah, that's crazy. But uh, there, we, we want to make sure that we're reflective of the movement of God. And the latest movement of God's spirit, I think, is um, this is called um, um, Howdy Duty in the Spirit. Uh, that's what this is. Uh, that is that is Will. Obviously, that's this is this isn't real, right? This is this is a part of it. Will told me not to show that picture to God, but I had to show it to you. Um, <laughs> but uh, well, I guess I don't have I don't have the other one. Sorry about that. Oh, you want to go to the next picture? I have. All right, good deal. So God's spirit. What really characterizes God's spirit? Clearly. We can, as Christians, be kind of crazy about how we describe what characterizes God's spirit moving, right? Um, we, I think we're guilty of that as Christians. We think God's spirit oftentimes is characterized by, you know, maybe some T-shirts, like really cool slogans on T-shirts. Or a great Christian, you know, more people who listen to the Christian contemporary station. That must be God's spirit moving. Um, uh, oftentimes, myself, for years I have prayed for God's spirit to move in a, a great awakening way. In a supernatural, powerful way for God's spirit to move. And I can remember sitting in a rural church in Roxboro, North Carolina. I don't even know how many years ago. I was pastoring a church up there. And, uh, um, you know, on, on, a, on high attendance Sunday, we had like 20 folks there. So that's why I'm pretty, I feel good around here. Um, it's, you know, we, I feel like we're at a mega church these days. Um, so so we would, I would go, but I would go in there. Sometimes every night, day, night after night after night, and I, nobody would be there. We lived in a parsonage right beside the church, and I would go in there, and I'd lay on my face before God, and I would beg.
beg God to move. And I would beg God to pour out a spirit. And I would, I would describe to God what I wanted him to do as if, as if I get to do that sometimes. But, you know, he is gracious in how he lets us pray our hearts to him. And I would, just, I would describe to God what I wanted him to do. And I would talk about all the people I wanted to see come into that building. And all the, the hearts that were being changed. And, and I would look out, I would I'd get up and I would look out and I'd pray. And I'd pray over each pew and I would just imagine and pray for that place to be filled with people. Because that, for me, was what characterized God's spirit moving. Acts chapter 2 challenges that. And that was a message that I heard over and over this week. Acts chapter 2 teaches us that when God's spirit moves, buildings aren't filled, they're empty. When God's spirit moves, people don't come to the church, the church goes out. There is a couple of quotes that we heard over the last few weeks that I think reflect that. This is from Louis Giglio. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Louis Giglio. Uh, he is a pastor of a church called Passion City Church, founder of what's called the Passion Movement, if you will. As probably as used by God as any preacher in the last 50 years other than Billy Graham, honestly. He was speaking, spoke to us on Sunday night, and he said, God will send the power, and then he will send you out. So one of the reasons why we're so desperate for God's power is because we believe that when God's power truly works as effectively as the Bible describes it working, uh, him working in our lives as he truly designs and has designed the church to do, he will send us out. It won't be characterized by how many crowds gather, but how the church goes. When God sends out his power, he will send you out. That was Louis Giglio's message as he talked to us about how important it is for us to seek God's face and seek God's spirit. Um, so how? What, what does that look like? I want God's spirit to move in this church. And I'm okay if there's crowds as long as those crowds go, right? It's okay if people gather. They gathered in the upper room. But if the, if the gathering stops there and we're not sent out to the nations, then the gathering is ineffectual. It's still that potential energy. No matter how many people gather in this room or another room in the future, no matter how many people come watch the preacher preach or the musicians lead in worship, no matter how many people are there, that's still potential energy. The potential energy of the church doesn't turn into kinetic energy until we leave the building. Until we go into our jobs and go into our work workplaces, until we go into the streets to carry the gospel forth, making discipleships person by person, relationship by relationships, family by family. But how? Vance Pittman, um, guy who started church in Nevada, as a matter of fact, he's from my hometown, so I always like, he, he, he spoke um, one night as well. Uh, no, actually, uh, one of the mornings, Tuesday morning, I believe it was. He said this. He said, God in his sovereignty has chosen to limit his activity to the prayers of his people. So we see in the passage of Scripture that, uh, that um, Will referred to earlier that, uh, that the initiating phase of Jesus' ministry was the Spirit of God descending on Jesus like a dove. And then this movement began to be, began to be birthed as he joined in the movement that John the Baptist had already started through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then the next thing we see is that God in his spirit, Jesus, starts to recruit people to go, be sent out. I will go, Come follow me and I will, I will make you fishers of men. The very first statements for Jesus were, let's go out and make disciples. Let's, let's be sent on mission. How does that happen? God in his sovereignty has chosen to limit the acti his activity to the prayers of his people. Just pause on that for a second. If there's ever been a statement that describes potential energy, 
and it's transitioning into kinetic energy, that's the statement. And in some ways, that statement is both supernaturally mysterious that God's potential energy, oftentimes, and we know that God works and is in control of this universe beyond what this statement says in a, in a general way, but in a very specific way, God's desire and will to work through the church is reflective of his prayers, of our prayers, so that we see that potential energy reflected in the kinetic energy in the church. One last quote. I've got a bunch, but I'll I won't be like my dad. Love him, but he, uh, he likes to show all his pictures. <laughs> this was from David Platt. Um, he spoke last. He is the president of the International Mission Board, so if you're not from the Southern Baptist world, we'll look alike. Uh, he's president of the arm of the Southern Baptist Convention that makes sure we resource and send people all over the, all, all over the nations internationally. And I recently became that in that role. He said this, When was the last time you wept over people in need? I think we can be guilty as believers, as followers of Christ, of thinking that it's, and we started with strategies today, right? And that's intentional. Jesus was strategic. Paul was strategic. Then we can be, be guilty of thinking strategies enough. I saw someone respond to some of these thoughts in this way, that God could even use a really bad strategy through his spirit to accomplish great things. And God's Spirit's going to move when we pray. But it's not just going to be because we open our mouth and pray. Just go to say some words. We've prayed, right? God's Spirit moves when we pray with a kind of desperation represented by that word, weep. And it can't be weeping. God, please have a bunch of people that come to Restoration Church so we can have a big budget and have a big building and have a cool band have cool media and uh, bring Will and Lance and the student pastor and the worship pastor full time. That's okay, God, if you want to do that. You, you know, I'm okay with that too. But you know, that's, that's, that, that, we, can't just be, we can't weep for that. We've got to weep for the brokenness and for the darkness represented in Durham and Chapel Hill, North Carolina and throughout the world into the nations. Is our heart broken? Are we weeping? Thank you for joining us today on this episode of the Restoration Church Podcast. To learn more about our church or to hear other messages, please visit us at www.restorationchurch.us.